0: Let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what a great prayer we've already prayed, that you would reign in us in every area of our lives. We ask that you would help us, even as we deal with a controversial subject this morning, to not let that shake our love, our unity for one another, but help us to each one, Come to grips with what it is that you're telling us in your word. And if I say anything that's of me, I pray that you would simply remove that from our memories, but help us to interact, all of us, including myself, with your scriptures. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing a study in Titus. So if you'll turn with me to Titus chapter 1, just to get the context once again, I'm going to begin reading at verse verse 5 and read through verse 9 talking about the qualifications of an elder, an overseer, a pastor. I'm talking about one of those in particular this morning, that having to do with the use of alcohol. Verse 5, Paul to Titus, his protege, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And so here's what he's looking for in an elder. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we've seen in our study in Titus already that an overseer, elder, pastor must not be a drunkard, it says. And I'm isolating this one qualification so we can take a longer look at it this morning. And I'd like to start out with some statements that will, I believe, find close to, if not unanimous, agreement among us. I know that's a dangerous thing to say, but I think we're all going to agree on this. Christians should not, and of course the leaders of these Christians should not, get drunk. Not drunkards, it says in the text. Should not be alcoholics. Believers shouldn't be involved in getting drunk and being alcoholics Shouldn't be problem drinkers, however you define that. Should not drink and drive. Should not serve alcohol to minors. So what we're basically saying is excess and illegality with regard to alcoholic beverages are wrong. And I think most of us would agree with that. Now let's continue with a statement that will not find unanimous agreement. The wisest course of action is for a Christian to completely abstain from the use of alcoholic beverages. The wisest course of action. Obviously, this is a very controversial subject among sincere Bible-believing Christians, but it is my thesis this morning. It's something that I'm going to share with you. It is my conviction, and I believe that as far as I can, I've supported that in my mind from the Scriptures but that's something that all of us need to do on our own one way or the other. The church has become almost paralyzed to silence in dealing with this subject. You won't find too many churches where this is dealt with in the way that it will be dealt with certainly this morning. The stance of the church has been to duck this issue. And why? Well, one Christian periodical put it this way, Unfortunately, most ministers do not feel free to speak out on this subject. No doubt they fear that too many in their own congregation would misinterpret what they say as a direct personal attack and be offended. Please understand, I understand the risk of offending here this morning, but it is not a personal attack on anyone at all. Leaders who are total abstainers know that a third or more in their congregation engage in social drinking, and I think that's a, an older statistic. It's got to be more than that now. A lot of pastors are not willing to offend that large a group in the church. Where When seven out of ten Americans use alcohol as a beverage, and it's probably a little more than that, a third of those who call themselves evangelicals do, one half of all ministers do. And so once again, uh, at the outset, my goal is not to offend, but I do have to take that risk, because risks are involved when love is involved. And so lovingly, I'm going to take that risk this morning. You start out with a question. Does it make sense to be a total abstainer from alcoholic beverages? Does it make sense? Does it make sense to call for abstinence from alcoholic beverages? Well, our reaction against legalism says no. Another rule, they say. You're trying to give us another rule. We don't need rules. That's legalism. That's Phariseeism. So somebody who's calling for total abstinence, we've got too many thou shalt nots already, the argument will go. We don't need the 11th commandment. We don't need somebody who's old-fashioned, somebody who's out of touch, somebody who's a relic trying to tell us to do something that everybody understands is not a problem any longer. So does it make sense to call for total abstinence? Christian liberty also says no. Doesn't make sense. All we're supposed to do is not violate our own consciences. No one can tell me what my business is but me myself. So does it make sense to call for total abstinence? A reaction against legalism says no. Christian liberty says no. As long as I'm not violating my conscience, nobody else should be telling me what I should be doing. But logic, I believe, and common sense say yes. It does make sense to call for total abstinence. And I believe biblical wisdom says yes as well. I only ask that you interact with the same scriptures I will this morning and ask God to help us in our study Alden Union Church does not have an official position on this issue. I share the results of my study and my conviction. So don't think that this is the litmus test of orthodoxy or that we hold this against people, that this is someone's conviction I'm sharing with you mine, but I believe that it is based on the scriptures. I take the same position as a former president of our country and ask you at least to consider the same. At a public dinner for General William Henry Harrison, who later became President of the United States. One of the guests got up and drank to his health. Harrison replied by raising a glass of water. Another man offered a toast saying, will our honored guest favor us this time by drinking in response a glass of wine? People are often trying to make converts to drinking. Have you noticed that? If we were as evangelistic in bringing people to Christ as people are trying to bring us to alcohol, can you imagine what the world would be like today? But this one person challenging General Harrison in front of everyone else, this time, please forget the water and drink the wine. General Harrison asked to be excused. After much urging, he said solemnly, gentlemen, not a drop of liquor has ever passed my lips. I made a resolve when I started out in life that I would avoid strong drink. That vow I have never broken. I am one of a class of 17 young men who graduated from college together. The other 16 members of my class now fill drunkards' graves. I owe my health, my happiness, and prosperity to my early resolution. Would you urge me to break it now? A hushed silence came over the audience, for the wisdom of his words could not be refuted. I understand that's an extreme example I understand that doesn't happen all the time but that did happen and that one resolved helped that one man for his whole life and that one resolve has helped a lot of people through their lives I don't know anybody who has ever wished they hadn't made that resolve I know a lot of people who wish they had when they were younger let me try some logic on for size there are some interesting statistics what percentage of total abstainers do you believe end up filling drunkards graves Okay, 0%. How many of William Henry Harrison's classmates began drinking without a clue that they would end up problem drinkers? We'd have to say probably 16 of them. How many total abstainers have ever injured or killed someone while driving drunk? Uh, that percentage, again, is pretty low, like zero. How many total abstainers have ever verbally, emotionally, or physically abused or embarrassed their spouses or children while under the influence of alcohol? Once again, none. There's nothing to lose here except all of these things that we're mentioning. How many totally abstaining mothers have given birth to children with the crippling effects of fetal alcohol syndrome? None. Once again. Another president, Abraham Lincoln, age nine years old, promised his mother on her deathbed he would never touch a drop of alcohol, and he was under intense pressure, as was President Harrison, as are many others to do that. On one occasion, a man told him, "I would give a1,000 dollars today if I had made my mother a promise like that." You know, it doesn't have to cost you a thousand dollars. It saves you actually, a lot of money. I'm not an ex-president. I'm an ordinary person. I know that's a stretch. Um, I'm, a, I'm a person, anyway. I made that resolve to my grandmother. When I was very, very young, I would never touch a drop of alcohol. And I was under intense pressure in high school and in college. The guys that I was doing sports with and hanging out with, uh, they did everything in their power to get me to drink. I was never tempted. I couldn't have been tempted because I made a promise. I made a resolve. And I wasn't going to go back on that. Does it make sense for our young people to hear this message, do you think? Do you realize over 15 million Americans are dependent on alcohol? Probably realize maybe not the exact number, but millions and millions and millions. Do you realize 500,000 of them are between the ages of nine and 12. That's shocking statistic. Each year, students spend more than 5.5 billion dollars on alcohol, more than they spend on soft drinks, tea, milk, juice, coffee, or books combined. You know, there's a problem that needs to be taught early in life to children. Let's get to the Scriptures. What does the Old Testament say? The Old Testament says a lot, but just for a couple of samples, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, And whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Proverbs 23, verses 20 through 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Understand, this isn't talking about total abstinence. This is talking about abstaining from being drunk, from excessive use of alcohol. But stay with me. We're going to weave some things together, and I think we're going to see... What the scripture says in the Old Testament is something that we don't even want to lead people in the first step in that direction. Turn with me, please, to Proverbs chapter 23 for just a moment. Proverbs chapter 23. We'll look at verse 29. What does the Old Testament say? It describes something here that many of you will understand very well. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things, and your heart utter perverse things. I think it's reference there to pink elephants and the like. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. You understand that scene, what's going on there, the description of somebody that is out of control, somebody that is intoxicated, somebody that's having all kinds of strange things happening that ordinarily would not. So a, a few samples of what the Old Testament says. I want to make a point, and this is like a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the passages in the Bible that are often cited to support the use of alcoholic beverages don't. They don't support them. So this is a bridge between Old Testament and New Testament use. You'll see what I'm referring to in just a moment. People will say this. People will say the Bible doesn't forbid moderate or light drinking. The Bible actually condones drinking when it's under control. People drank in the Bible. Jesus turned the water into wine, and don't tell me it was grape juice, they'll say. Wine was used in drink offerings in the Old Testament. How can you say that it's, there's something wrong with it if that's the case? Paul told Timothy to drink a little wine. So the Bible condones, even encourages and supports moderate drinking, they will say. Let me begin to counter this by saying that there is a preponderance, a biblical warning on the subject of consuming alcoholic beverages or strong drink. There are at least 75 direct references to, that show disapproval from God's perspective of drinking alcoholic beverages, at least intoxicating beverages, and then those that lead to that. A quick word study. Three words in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. Ya'in is one of them. And this word ya'in is used 140 times. It's used 21 times in combination with another word we're going to see for wine, both of which means strong drink. We'll see both of those words. We've seen them already in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Its intoxicating properties are mentioned 20 times. It is used in drink offerings in the Old Testament. But here's something about those drink offerings. They were never drunk. Do you understand that? They were never drunk. Those offerings were present, but they weren't drunk. Daniel refused the king's ya'in. It was prohibited for the Nazarites when they took a vow to drink the ya'in. Wine was the most intoxicating drink known in ancient times. Even still, it was light wine. It wasn't fortified the way it is today. Concentrated alcohol was known only during the Middle Ages when the Arabs invented distillation. So today's gin, whiskey, 20% fortified wines were unknown in Bible times. And in fact, the wines of Bible time were diluted I've read many studies, and I could I could bore you half to death with statistics. I'm only going to bore you with other things instead of those statistics today. But it was diluted one part to, one part wine to two parts water, sometimes three parts, sometimes as many as seven or eight parts water. It was not the strong drink that we know today. They had to drink a lot in order to get drunk, and they did. Drunkenness was a problem, but they had to drink a whole lot. It was not the way that it was today the way that it is today. Beer was brewed by various methods, but its alcoholic content was light. Another Hebrew word, shikar. Shikar translated strong drink in Proverbs 21. It means an intoxicant, intensely alcoholic, strong drink. These are the two words that are underlined on the screen right now. Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler. That's ya'in is a mocker, shikar is a brawler. These two Hebrew words are are there in front of us. In 19 of the 22 times shikar is used, it is more or less condemned. Sometimes it's just mentioned in passing without anything to to necessarily say it's negative. But 19 of the 22 times, it's more or less condemned. Every time but one, it is associated with yain. It's used to describe the intoxication of Noah, Nabal, Amnon, Ella, and Ben-Hadad. There's a third word that is used in the Hebrew language. These three predominant words in the Old Testament scriptures after Yain and shikar is tyrosh. Tyrosh means fresh or new wine. It's used 38 times, 20 of these in connection with grain or oil as the fresh produce of the field. It's said to be in Isaiah in the cluster, also in Isaiah in the vats or in the presses we're talking about grape juice we're talking about the freshly squeezed juice of a grape so we've got two words for strong drink we've got one word for i'm going to call it grape juice it's freshly pressed juice of the grape now this is a bridge this section here that we've been we've been studying a little bit about the the bible is not to be used to defend any kind of drinking but what does the new testament say well the new testament doesn't have those three words the new testament has only one word to describe all three of those other ones it's the word oinos the greek word oinos takes all of those primary meanings and the meanings in the old testament and we're left to determine by the context which of them is being described. It could be any of the three. For example, when we read Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, oinos, what does it mean? Well, obviously, don't get drunk with wine. This is talking about the intoxicating kind of alcoholic beverage. For that is debauchery. Don't be controlled, don't be empowered by that, but be filled with the Holy Spirit instead. But in Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 through 15, Christ is treading out the wine press, literally the wine press of the wine. He's treading on the grapes. What comes out of grapes when you step on them? Well, it's got to be grape juice in that case. So we see in the New Testament, the context determines whether oinos means strong drink or whether it means the juice of the grape. The usual argument for moderate drinking comes from Jesus turning water into wine in John chapter 2. If Jesus turned water into wine, how can anybody ever say that there's something wrong with drinking wine in moderation? Well, what did Jesus turn the water into at the wedding feast? He actually turned the water into oinos. Was that intoxicating wine, or was it grape juice? Let's examine what was going on. You've read this in John chapter 2 before. You've read about the water pots... Do you know how much they held? We're told in that account in John chapter 2, each one of the six stone water jars where the water was put in and was changed to wine, each one of those six was filled with 20 to 30 gallons of oinos. That's 120 to 180 gallons of oinos. Now think about this. That large amount of wine brought in during the latter part of a feast in a small country town, Remember, they ran out of whatever they had been drinking before them. That that large amount of wine gives us no real basis logically for arguing the Scriptures condone moderate drinking. It would either prove something else. Excessive drinking was allowable. To have that much of it there at the end of a feast in a small town, either excessive drinking was allowable, or the oinos in this case was grape juice in light of the whole testament condemnation of strong drink it would certainly appear that the beverage was grape juice or something better than grape juice but not something intoxicating to understand the point that i'm at least trying to make by that it doesn't argue for casual moderate drinking either it goes to the other extreme or it shows that it was not something that was going to make people drunk now add this to the accumulation of evidence Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 15. This is God's word it says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin skin till they are drunk. God says, you don't do that to other people. You don't cause them to, would Jesus have done that? There's no way that Jesus could have done what people say that he did at the end of this wedding feast, that he would have changed the water into intoxicating wine and then encouraged by doing that people to, to violate the curse that had been placed. Jesus would have been violating that himself. Two New Testament scriptures, one in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and I won't take time to read verses 6 through 8, but First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 as well. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, incidentally, is the parallel listing of where we are in Titus when it's talking about elders and the qualification of elders. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, believers are called to be sober. In 1 Timothy 3, 2, the overseers are told to be sober-minded, but it's the same word in Greek. It's the word nephalios. Nephalios is what they're called to, to be in both of those cases. That word nephalios very often will be translated sober, sober sober-minded, and you look at the commentators and they will say that that means metaphorically that you're supposed to be serious in your intent, you're to be sober-minded. But that word nephalios is only used three times in the New Testament, but it is used repeatedly in classical Greek. And when the classical Greek authors use it, it has this meaning, free from all wine, not under the influence of any intoxicants. First Timothy's list goes on to include drunkenness. It's not saying here anything other than the fact that it's, it's, it's not even a step in that direction for the older. Now you'll find a lot of commentators will take the metaphorical meaning. I happen to take a literal one here. First Timothy chapter five, verse 23 where Timothy is told, and people often quote this, Timothy, you need to drink a little wine. Uh, There's more to it than that. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. What's that saying? Medicine with alcohol, and it is certainly not forbidden. Is this verse a justification for social drinking? I'd say not at all it shows that Timothy was a total abstainer. No longer drink only water, and their water was awful at that particular time. No longer drink only water. It's okay for you because of your ailments. It was used in a medicinal way. Now, all I'm saying by some of these things about the water into wine and use a little wine for your stomach's sake and the the drink offering that wasn't drunk, I'm just saying this. If you choose to drink... Don't do it on the basis of trying to justify it from the Bible. Don't say the Bible condones it. Don't use that as your reason for drinking. I don't think that we're on good biblical ground if that's what we're doing. If we're saying the Bible condones this, it doesn't. Some quick disclaimers. I'm not saying that there is something inherently sinful about alcohol and that if it ever touched anyone's lips, you'd be tainted forever. I'm not saying that. I did not try to invent the 11th commandment and legalistically insist that everyone must follow my conviction. So far, I did state that God's wisdom and human logic argue eloquently that to be a total abstainer from alcohol makes sense. I did state that the passages in the Bible cited to support the use of wine don't. And I want to share some practical principles as we move forward. I believe, as a conscientious Christian... I want to avoid every kind or form or appearance of evil. As a conscientious Christian, that's what I want to do. I want to avoid every kind or form or appearance of evil. As we look at some of the scriptures, the ESV says abstain from every form of evil. The NIV says avoid every kind of evil. King James says abstain from all appearance of evil. And that's what I want to do as a conscientious Christian. That word for form or kind or appearance of evil means that which strikes the eye, that which is exposed to view. We're told to avoid or abstain from that which can be seen to be evil. Now, I ask this question. Does drinking carry with it the appearance or the actual form of evil? What meets the eye when you look at the whole... Alcohol influence in our country. What meets the eye? I I submit that it carries the appearance or the actual form of evil Look at several reasons why I would say that Does drug addiction carry the appearance or the form of evil? Most people would say yes, it does Alcohol is the number one drug problem in America. Everyone says that Is there a hint of evil if we want to look around our world today? In the job place, out where you work, these are two doctors who were indicted for being under the influence while they were doing the work. Do you want surgeons that are involved in that? I don't think the, on the workplace, you've heard all the statistics about the lost time, about the accidents at work. You don't want to work with this guy. Um, you don't want to work near him because he, he could easily cause trouble for all of you, a terrible accident. Uh, How about a pilot? This was a uh, plane that went down because the pilot was under the influence. Uh, Job place, when we look around, is there some form of evil that's going on there? The college campuses, the statistics, and again, we could, you could use statistics all over the place, but when we're talking in terms of what goes on on the college campuses, do you know the percentage a violent college campus crime that is alcohol related. You know what that is the crime on college campuses. that's alcohol related. It's 95% and you find all the time The drunken brawls and the various things that go along with that So right now if we're looking around our world, and we're looking at the job market We're looking at the places where people work. We understand there's something going wrong there Incidentally um, Art Williams, J.K.'s dad. He told me one time that he was the sixth manager of his store in two years. The first five were let go because of drinking problems. Art spent the next 32 years managing the store. He wrecked the average. College campuses. Let me read you something here from Isaiah. Does this sound like a frat party? Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks, who stay up late at night till they're inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Isaiah 5.22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks. When I was in college, it was it was a contest to see who could get drunk first. The guys would be involved in that. They they were heroes at drinking wine. Um, Not a good thing. How about the highways? I could tell you all about the statistics. You could go on to the Mothers Against Drunk Driving website or any website that talks about alcohol-related accidents. Half of the fatality, you you know all the statistics. I'm not going to go into any of that. Uh, And I could put a lot worse pictures on here. But if we go to the highways and see if we can find some appearance of evil, some form of evil, it's avoidable. Go to the health system, same thing. You can see the liver with cirrhosis as compared with a normal liver and understand most of the time cirrhosis of the liver is alcohol-related, not all of the time, but most of the time. So you could go to the health system and you could see that. You could talk about this whole idea of fetal alcohol syndrome, and you could talk about the statistics of, of those poor babies that are born as a result of that, and the ugly description. And I could have gotten a much, much worse picture of all of the things that we're, we're, we're looking at right now. What about alcohol-related problems involving crime? Statistics are running absolutely rampant. And drinking alcoholic beverage is not exactly very family-friendly either. Genesis 9, 20 to 26, Noah was drunk and had a problem with his sons. Genesis 19, Lot was drunk and had a problem with his daughters. Deuteronomy 21, 20, they shall say to the elders, the son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. They would take him out and stoning in that case. Esther, King Ahasuerus, it says when his heart was merry with wine, that's when he called his wife in to put her on display. Immodestly in front of the people who were there. No, this is not very family-friendly. I could go on and on and on about this. Uh, among spouses, violence, uh, the, the, the violence with regard to spouses, three out of four incidents were reported to have involved alcohol use by the offender. I was speaking with two policemen from Trenton on Thursday. It's not what you think. Um, I was having a nice conversation with them, and I said to them, I'm speaking about alcohol on Sunday. Tell me how it affects your work. They said, oh, domestic violence. It's incredible, they say, and it certainly is. And I've seen it, and I've seen it here in the church. I've seen I could. everything that I'm saying here that is a statistic somewhere out there is here in the church. One afternoon, I had three different appointments with people. One of them was a a woman who had come from a funeral of her best friend who died of cirrhosis of the liver. The next one who came in was a mother whose son had been stabbed in a barroom brawl. The next one was the result of some, I would call it, domestic violence in the home from somebody who really didn't want to drink anymore and was trying to stop, went to the home of one of our church members and was served wine with dinner and fell off the wagon, and there was problems. It happens all over. Lydia Eyre some of you may remember her gracious lady from our church she said dear paul this was in 1995 when i preached about the same subject dear paul i feel led to write to you to tell you why i have never used alcohol in my life of course now it is because i am a christian but originally it was because alcohol was the cause of breakup of our homes of our home your sermon this morning really took me back to my childhood and i pray it will really have a deep effect on all who heard it sadly it was not my father who drank but my mother I really have no happy memories of my mother, no birthday parties. I can remember crying that I had nothing to wear on Sunday. As a conscientious Christian, I want to avoid causing anyone else to stumble. Romans fourteen twenty It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. Do you know who really stumbles first when an adult drinks? is a member of the family. One researcher pointed out that the most prevalent cause of alcoholism is the family. Children and teenagers drink because their parents do. Would you ever want to be the cause of someone stumbling in this area of alcohol? Would you ever want to be the cause? You say, well, how can I ever know if I'm the cause or not cause somebody to stumble? That's the point. How can you ever know? How can you ever know? You say, well, I, I'm discreet. People see and you know what they see on your websites? They see on your Facebook pages? I mean, they, they see that, they know what goes on. How do you ever know if you're causing somebody to stumble? How do you ever know that you're a very impressionable to somebody who's maybe looking for some answers to life? As a conscientious Christian, I want to avoid damaging the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know the verse in 1 Corinthians 6, body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. We're supposed to glorify God in our body. As a conscientious Christian, I want to stay as far away from temptation as I possibly can. I want to stay as far away. I don't want to start drinking with the idea I'm never going to be a serious drinker. I'm never going to have a problem with it. We're told in the scriptures when we're taught about temptation to stay as far away from it, not to allow ourselves to be lured and enticed. You've heard me preach on this subject of temptation many, many times. We don't want to take the first step in the direction of this. Moderation is the first step toward immoderation. That sounds like a pretty basic statement, but it's very, very true. Moderation is the first step toward immoderation, true on two counts. Alcohol is a habit forming narcotic. Casual use tends to become habitual use. Habitual use tends to heavy and immoderate use. No, it won't happen to everybody, but far too many. Secondly, moderation is the first step toward in-moderation because the first effect of alcohol is to diminish our ability to say no. Doesn't he look severe? He's stern. That's why I picked this picture. Billy Graham has written the following in answer to the question. Somebody has written and said, I have no patience with people who get intoxicated, but do you think a little social drinking to promote good fellowship does any harm? His answer, of course it does. Can you be blind to the fact that one drink leads to another? In every city I visit, someone asks me to pray for a husband or wife or son who started as a social drinker and has now become an alcoholic. Today you think you have perfect self-control, but if you make a habit of drinking, what will you do when you face anxiety or disappointment? Obviously, my recommendation, stay away from drinking alcoholic beverages and help other people to do the same. Is it sinful to raise a glass of wine? That's not the issue. The issue is, is it wise? Can you drink without harming yourself, without being involved in a dangerous temptation, without causing someone else to stumble, without desecrating God's temple, without being a partner to what is an evil industry, without being close up to a kind of association of evil? And can you drink for the glory of God? I can't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for granting to us a glimpse at your word. My only prayer has been that maybe we've heard some things we didn't want to hear. and Maybe we're offended. But please remove any offense long enough for us just to grapple with the issues at stake. Offer your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.